story is told of an atheist who was walking through the woods one spring, and he was looking at the beautiful flowers and trees that just bloomed. Because he was an atheist, he couldn't thank anybody for the beauty that he saw, but he was enjoying it nonetheless. Well, as he was gazing at the sky, out of the corner of his eye, he saw a bear running towards him. So he jumped up and he began to run. Unfortunately, not a few strides into his run, he stumbled and fall, fell, and there on the ground, he thought for a second and said, well, I don't believe there is a God, but maybe this one time I'll pray to him. The atheist said, God, I need your help. Since I don't believe in you, I don't believe you exist, I have just one request. Will you make this bear a Christian? Just then the, the wind stopped howling, the creek stopped running, and the bear stopped dead in its tracks. Then it got to its knees and said, dear Lord, please bless this food I'm about to eat. Well, if you hadn't guessed today, we come to the topic of prayer. Now, let's be honest. When it comes to prayer, if you're a believer, right from the moment you prayed to receive Christ, you knew you ought to pray. In fact, it's something that's reinforced time and time again the longer you attend church. After all, if you've been at the church for any length of time, you've heard stories of great men of faith who got up every day and prayed for hours before they do anything else. You've heard sermon after sermon on prayer, and you know you need to pray. But while you know you should pray, for many, and maybe for you if you're honest, that is just easier said than done. Now, it's not that you haven't mastered the, the prayer before you eat a meal or some brief bedtime prayer. You do them, but beyond then, you don't often pray. That is, unless you're faced with a crisis and have nowhere else to turn, outside of when the phone rings and tragedy strikes, or when you realize you've driven past, a, sped past a police officer and you pray that the radar gun malfunctioned. Or, or when your family's in ruins or your marriage is struggling, outside of then, you just don't often pray. For some, perhaps it's just that prayer was never modeled for them. Their parents didn't pray that often, so they don't know how to pray, and they don't think of prayer. For others, it's that they prayed for something once, something that was good and wholesome, that they thought must be God's will, something God would want, and yet it didn't happen. God didn't answer leaving them wrestling with whether God answered, didn't answer because he couldn't, didn't want to, or whether he didn't answer because prayer simply doesn't work. Regardless what they concluded, they, they, what lie they believe, they just lost interest and stopped praying, concluding that prayer doesn't change anything. For still others, it isn't that they don't want to pray. No, in theory, they think they should. It's, it's just that they're just so busy that they don't prioritize time to pray with God. They leave it to the end of the day. Perhaps uh, it's the th last thing on their to-do list for the day that they just never seem to get to. Something that they try to jam in as they go to bed at night. I can't tell you how many times I've done that, only to find myself asleep, not a few sentences into my prayer. But you know, greater than those reasons, I truly think that people in Canada don't often pray because they just don't really see a need to. After all, life is okay for them, and because of that, there's nothing that drives them to their knees in prayer. No, no, they might not say it that way, but they believe it. It's just that they have all that they think they need. They have a roof over their head and food in their fridge and a solid job, and things are okay, so why bother to pray? Somehow they miss that prayer is more than just a request line for what we need. Well, truthfully, the reasons for lack of prayer are endless, aren't there? Aren't they? And yet, despite that, the Bible presents prayer as an essential part of the believer's life, essential practice for us. In fact, the Apostle Paul at one point encourages us to pray without ceasing, and another time to not be anxious about anything, but by prayer to make our requests known to God. 
And it was something that even Jesus modeled for us. A, a fact that should make us sit up and take notice. After all, if, if Jesus, the one that was one with the Father, set aside time to pray, if it was important to him, you would think that it should be important to us as well. So suffice to say, the Bible presents prayer as essential for us as believers. The other disciples, they knew it. They, they picked up on that. They had seen the way that Jesus prayed, his dedication to it. And so in the first passage we come to today, they asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And while we could look at that prayer, the Lord's Prayer, that Jesus went on to teach them, we've, we've done that before. So today we don't want to do that so much. Instead, we want to look at the instructions that he gave to his disciples after his prayer that he gave them. In fact, today we want to look at three lessons that Jesus gives us on prayer from three different parables he told. We'll look at one, and then we'll actually sing a song, and then we'll look at the last two. Well, the first one, it's found in Luke chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles with you or your phones, take them out and look up Luke chapter 11. As you turn to Luke chapter 11, let me give you some context. The 11th chapter of Luke starts with Jesus' disciples asking him to teach them how to pray. Now, that is odd when you think about it. I mean, the disciples were Jews. They had grown up in the synagogue. If anyone should have known how to pray, you would think it would have been them. And if they wanted to learn to pray. Truthfully, the fact that they did should be of great comfort to us today. As it certainly implies that prayer is something we can learn and something that can be taught. Meaning that if you're, you're here today and you would say that your prayer life is pathetic or non-existent, that there's still hope for you. Well, after laying out for them a pattern of prayer, after laying out for them the priorities that they should have in prayer, that should shape their prayer lives, Jesus goes on to tell them how they should pray. If you will, you can follow along as I read, starting in verse 1 of Luke chapter 11. Jesus said this, well, Luke writes this, And Jesus said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? To ask Jesus' story here, it's ridiculous, isn't it? After all, what kind of friend shows up in the middle of the night unannounced? And, and if they did, why would anybody expect you to feed them? I mean, couldn't they wait till morning? Wouldn't they understand, especially in an era where they didn't have fridges and in a society where they lived hand to mouth, why would they even think that you'd have some extra kicking around your home for them to eat? But you need to know back then that was a very real possibility. You see, it's just a travel. It was mostly on foot. And because of that, it was difficult. The terrain was rough. And there were few reliable ends you could stay in. It wasn't like you could jump on the internet and on Expedia or Hotwire and book something. So you had few options outside of showing up at the home of someone you knew. What's more, you couldn't just flip out your cell phone and let your friend know you were coming or you are running behind so they could be ready for you. So regardless of the time of day or night, that is where you went. And when you arrived, you expected that you'd be fed. 
You see, it's just that back then, hospitality was considered a sacred duty. In other words, there was a holy obligation to provide a bountiful meal when a guest arrived. And added, that added to the fact that travelers who were usually hungry when they arrived, put a lot of pressure on the host. Well, keep any meal was bread. After all, bread, it wasn't just for eating back then. It, it was used for dipping and sopping everything else up. It was the fork and spoon, if you will, with which you ate your meal. So the man in the story is in a bind. His friend has come, and yet he has no bread. And there's no 24-hour supermarket that he can go to. And yet biblical hospitality demanded that he provide for his friend when his friend arrived. So there's really only one thing this man can do. He can go to those who lived around and see if they have any bread he could borrow. Now sure, under normal circumstances, you wouldn't bother someone in the middle of the night. But these were not normal circumstances. He had to find some bread. And so he goes to his neighbors and pounds on their door. The neighbor's response, well, it's, it's awful reminiscent of the time that Winnie the Pooh went to visit Rabbit. I don't know if you've read this, but I have kids, so I have. The time when Winnie the Pooh saw Rabbit's hole and wondered about stopping for a little snack, so he bent down and called out, is anybody home? There was a sudden scuffling of noise from inside the hole and then silence. What I said, is anybody home, Pooh called out very loudly. No, said the voice, and then added, you needn't shout so long, I, loud, I heard you quite well the first time. Bother, said Pooh. Is there anyone at all here? Nobody, Rabbit replied. Rabbit just didn't want to play host to a hungry bear, but eventually Pooh's boldness paid off and Rabbit invites him in to come, and, come inside and eat. Well, the same thing happens in the parable. The man's neighbor's already in bed. His whole family's sleeping, likely in their one-room home. So the last thing he wants to do is get out of bed. So he told his neighbor that in at least four ways. No doubt hoping his neighbor would get the point, move on to another neighbor, or just break the sad news to his guest. He tells him, don't bother me, the door is shut, my children are in bed, and I cannot get up. The bread wasn't the issue. He had that. No, the real issue is the man, not that the man couldn't help, it was that he didn't want to. Go away, you are bothering me. You see, while the door is shut, it could be opened and closed again. While the kids were asleep, sure, if they woke up, that might be inconvenient, but they could be put back to bed. He just didn't want to be bothered. No doubt the neighbor got that idea. In fact, he must have picked up on the fact that his neighbor hadn't said, go away, I don't have any bread to give you. That, that, is, that, that wasn't the problem. The problem was he just didn't want to give up to give it to him. Years ago, I remember walking in a rather sketchy part of Chicago with a friend. And a man cornered us, and he wanted us to give, us, give him our money. Now, I didn't have any money with me, and the man quickly believed that. But my friend had money with him, and he, the man quickly picked that up. And so he pressed my friend harder and harder for his cash. Well, this man figured out that his neighbor had bread, so he pressed him. And Jesus, he, he doesn't give us the rest of the dialogue in this story, but you can fill in the blanks. In fact, if you've ever tried to persuade someone to do something they didn't want to do, you know how it likely went. But I really need your help. Do you remember the time I helped you? You wouldn't want me to go tell my guests that you wouldn't help, would you? Is that the good Jewish thing to do? What would the rabbi say? On and on the men went until eventually the man in bed decides that if he wanted to get any sleep, he better do something. Perhaps the conversation had already started to waken his children. Maybe even his neighbors were starting to wonder what was going on outside. So this man gets up and gives the man some bread. Back when I was a youth pastor, it wasn't uncommon for me to get phone calls in the middle of the night. It often took me a minute to wake up to figure out what was ringing and then a minute to figure out who I was and where I was. And, but I'd always get up and answer it. Normally, I'd find out that it was a college or university student or a young married couple that wanted to talk. I'd listen for a few minutes, 
and then quickly conclude that whatever it was, it could wait till the morning and ask them to call me back then. Well, imagine that they wouldn't take that for an answer, but instead call again and again. I'm sure at first I'd probably ignore it, but at some point I'd get up and deal with it. After all, it isn't by the repeated calling that I'd be getting any sleep anyways. Truthfully, even more than that, more than the repeated calling, their boldness to call me at that hour in the middle of the night would help me to see how important and urgent the issue was to them. Here Jesus said, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. That, that word impudence, it, it isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament. But it means a lack of sensitivity to what is proper. In other words, it, mean, it speaks to his shameless boldness at awaking his neighbor. We all know some people like that, don't we? People that don't really care about what others think and have the sheer audacity to come right out and ask for something that no one else would dare to mention. Well, Jesus is saying that is how we should pray. Not timidly dropping God hints about what we need, not passive-aggressively bantering around what's truly on our heart, but boldly, even shamelessly, bringing a request to God and then continuing to pray about them until we get an answer. Now, let me be clear. Jesus is not saying that our prayers annoy God. He's not saying that we have to cajole or coax God into giving us what we need. After all, God is not like this sleeping neighbor. He's not like the man in the bed here. No one said, Jesus is making a comparison between this man and Jesus and, and God. He's saying that even if the most reluctant neighbor will help us in the middle of the night, how much more will our Father in heaven hear us and help us when we pray to him? Over in Psalm 121, we're told that God does not sleep. Elsewhere, we're told that he loves to help his people in need. So God is not like this neighbor. In fact, to hit home the comparison, Jesus goes on to tell us, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find and knock and the door will be opened. In essence, Jesus tells us that God is waiting and willing to answer. Now, I, I know when I say that, that there are many of us that immediately think of those prayers that we prayed that God didn't answer. At least not the way we wanted him to. And yet when we immediately go there in our minds, we miss what Jesus is saying here. After all, Jesus was not saying we could ask for whatever we want and get it. Friends, God is not a genie in a bottle that appears to grant our every wish. He is the one that is sovereign. He is the one that is in control and determines what he does, not us. And so we can't, nor should we demand whatever we want and expect that he will ante up it, to give it. So while it may sound like he's saying that, Jesus isn't promising us everything and any, anything here. And in fact, given the context of this parable, Jesus was likely saying that we should pray boldly, ask boldly, when it comes to those things, that he had told them before this section they should pray for. The things that were in the Lord's Prayer. That God's name should be hallowed, his kingdom come, that God would provide for them, forgive them, and not lead them into temptation. Those are the things that we can be certain that God will answer and can boldly ask for. We can ask for those things that God has promised, those spiritual blessings that he's promised believers. And we can boldly approach his throne to do so. And when we do so, when we ask for those things that are in line with his sovereign will and his perfect purpose, those things that we are promised, he promised us, we can be sure we will receive them. Over the book of Hebrews, we're reminded that because Jesus had died for us and saved us, we can with confidence and boldness draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. The author of Hebrews, he's telling us that as believers, you and I, we can come to before God and speak plainly. We can speak honestly without fear that We'll be shamed or punished. He's our Father, so we can boldly enter. 
Well, here Jesus tells us to bring these sorts of requests with audacious boldness. No, not to persuade God to do something he doesn't want to do, but to do the things he's promised. Friends, we don't pray boldly because God will only answer us if we do, but because he tells us to, and as if he wouldn't answer us if we didn't. Over in the book of James, we're told, if, if you lack any wisdom, let him, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Now, it isn't that God can't help or won't help the one who wavers. After all, over in the book of Mark, we find a time when Jesus was approached by a father who asked Jesus to help his son. The, the father said this to Jesus, If you can do every, anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child responded, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus helped the boy. So it isn't that we can't be like that father nor that God never answers us when our faith is wavering, but instead that time and time again, we're encouraged to pray with faith, with a bold confidence in God. I feel like I can hear someone say, well, Chad, what, what if the answer is no? How can I pray boldly if it's a no? And if I prayed that way and I got a no, wouldn't my faith be rattled? But here's the thing. The kind of faith that can go boldly to their father and ask is the kind of faith that won't be rattled when their father says no for their own good or for the good of his kingdom. So we're to pray boldly. We're to pray boldly for those who don't know Jesus. We appeal to God. We plead with him to continue to finish the work that he's already started to them, knowing that he's promised to finish the work he starts. We, we go boldly to God and tell him that saving our friends would serve his greater glory. God may refuse he is God after all. He, he might have something else that will bring him more glory, but we pray boldly anyways, and we keep on praying, knowing that however he answers, we can trust him. One author wrote, Our families are not as strong and as spiritually stable as they ought to be. We're not progressing in sanctification as we ought. We're not seeking revival like we should. Why are these things so? Because we don't pray, and when we pray, we trifle at it. Trifle at it. Now, I don't know about you, but if you have teenagers, you likely know what I'm talking about, or at least if you had mine, you would. They are bold. They ask incredible things at times, desires that are beyond what I will ever be able to afford, and yet they ask anyways. They ask and ask until they get an answer. They are bold. They make their case. They plead. Well, we're to pray that way, confident that our God knows better than us, and realizing nor wanting our requests to get in the way of his perfect will. Charles Inglis, the well-known evangelist, once wrote about when he first came to America. He wrote, I, I crossed the Atlantic with a captain of a steamer who was one of the most devoted men I ever knew. And when we were off the banks in Newfoundland, he said this to me. Mr. Inglis, the last time I crossed here five weeks ago, one of the most extraordinary things happened that has completely changed the whole of my Christian life. Up to that time, I was one of your ordinary Christians. But we had a man of God on board, George Muller of Bristol, of Bristol. I had been on the bridge for 22 hours and never left it when I was startled by someone tapping me on the shoulder. It was George Muller. Captain, he said, I've come to tell you that I must be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon. This was Wednesday. It was impossible, I said. Very well, if your ship can't take me, but I've never broken an engagement in 50 years, he said. I would willingly help you. How can I? I am helpless, said the captain. Let us go down to the chart room and pray, said George Muller. 
I looked at the man of God and thought to myself, the captain did, what lunatic asylum could this man have come from? I've never heard of such a thing. Mr. Muller, I said, do you know how dense the fog is? No, he replied, my eye is not on the density of fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. He then got down on his knees and prayed one of the most simplistic prayers. I muttered to myself, that would suit a children's class where the children were not more than eight years old. The burden of his prayer was something like this. Oh Lord, if it's consistent with your will, please remove this fog in five minutes. You know the engagement you made for me in Quebec for Saturday. I believe it is your will. When he finished, I was going to pray, but he put his hands on my shoulder and told me not to pray. He said, first, you don't believe he will answer. And second, I believe he already has. There's no need for you to pray. And as George Mueller said it, the fog lifted. We're to pray boldly and confidently. In fact, Jesus wanting us to know that we can put our trust in God and, and trust he will answer, so much so goes on, on to hit home that point by asking two absurd questions. He asked what father would give his son a snake instead of a fish or a scorpion instead of an egg. One commentator put it this way, this sounds like something from Edgar Allan Poe or Stephen King. Daddy may have a fish for lunch? Sure, son, here you go. The boy trustingly grasps what his father gives him only to find to his horror that he's holding a snake. Daddy, I'm hungry. Give me an egg to eat. But the boy raises what he thinks he's given towards his lip. And as he does so, a scorpion uncoils its venomous tail. And then he says, writes this, Not even a mafia don or Hitler or any run-of-the-mill sinful father would dream of such treachery. No, an ordinary father listens to what the children need and provide their kids what they need. Even a bad father tries to give their kids what they need. The point is simple. If a bad father knows to give good gifts, we can trust that our heavenly father, our perfect heavenly father, will give us the best gifts of all. And to drive that point home, Jesus further mentions that he gives us the Holy Spirit. Because there is no greater gift that God could give us. Because by giving us the Holy Spirit, he's giving us the gift of himself gift that carries with it spiritual life and forgiveness of sins and hope of eternity. But not only that, it's a gift that provides us what we need for today. As through His Spirit, God walks with us and gives us strength to face whatever we may face in life. So let me ask you, as we, as we finish this first parable, let me ask you, do you boldly pray? Do you enter God's throne room with confidence, knowing that God as your Father wants to answer and that He knows what is best for you? Do you boldly go to him, asking him for what he's promised? Do you even know what he's promised? Here, Jesus encourages us to go to God boldly. So what do you need to pray boldly about today? The worship team is going to come, and we're going to sing, and then we'll look at another parable. Well, we're going to briefly look at two more. There's a story about a, a rancher from Colorado. He, he once received that resubscription notice to National Geographic, but the, the computer handling the mailing malfunctioned and it generated over 9,700 separate renewal notices for him. His mailbox was overflowing. So the rancher, he quickly traveled to the nearest post office and sent a renew his subscription a and a check and along with a note that said, I give up, send me your magazine. Well, that is the kind of persistence we come to in the second parable we come across. The parable is in Luke 18. There we read this. It's Luke 18, starting in, one, in verse 1. Luke writes this. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Jesus said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, 
Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give you justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Luke, right up front, he tells us the reason for this parable. Jesus isn't just telling us another story here. He was using the story to teach them and us how to pray and not lose heart. He was teaching us to pray persistently. The story, it's of an unjust judge. A judge that really wasn't qualified to be a judge. After all, a Jewish judge's first requirement is that they fear God. And what's more, since a judge never thinks he's going to have to give an account to God, he has no incentive, no reason to be just. Instead, the judge is ungracious, he's unloving, he's unmerciful. He's the kind of judge you can only get to rule in your favor if you bribe or threaten them. Neither of which the widow could do. All she could do, her only recourse, was to plead with him, to be a squeaky wheel, and so that is what she did. She probably pleaded with him in front of his fellow judges on the street. She pestered him in the market. She went to his house and called out to him. And at first, the judge, he ignored her, hoping she'd go away. But the woman was relentless. She wouldn't stop. She, she wouldn't take no for an answer, but kept persisting until the judge give, gave her justice. The woman was such a constant annoyance that she, in the end, simply wore the man down. And sometimes if we ask for something long enough, we can get what we want, even when the people we're asking really don't want to give it to us. It's just that they eventually realize it will cost them less to give in than it will to, be, than it will to put up with the, the persistent pleading. I don't, I don't know about you, but I have children that have figured this out. And so they constantly ask. They plead. They come up with written proposals suggesting the reasons why I should give them something that they want. They, they ask in front of their friends. They ask at church. They, they find me when I've gone to my shop to hide. They sit down while I'm watching football, and even though I don't look at them to acknowledge that they are there, like a leopard ready to pounce, they wait for that moment to ask. They persist, wearing me down. Somehow they know the only resources they have is their stubbornness, and so they use that. And when one seems to be succeeding, and I start to get worn down, like sharks with blood in the water, they all come to start plead. Of course, the problem my kids have is that I'm a whole lot more stubborn than this judge. Still, that is what this widow does. And here Jesus is telling us we should pray to God like that. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus, he's not telling us we must frantically go to God and beg God to answer our prayers. He wasn't saying that we can somehow overwhelm God with our requests, soften his resolve until he relents and does something for us that he really doesn't want to do. Nor was he saying that God won't answer us unless we beg him to, unless we pester him to. You see, you and I are not like the nameless widow in this parable. Instead, if you know Jesus, you are, his, you are a child of God. God has adopted you into his family. God knows your name. He's promised to work all things out for your good, to never leave you or forsake you, to walk with you, guide you, and provide for you like a father does his child. You are his chosen, someone that his son has redeemed. So you and I, we're not like the widow in this, in this passage. We're not insignificant nobodies that the judge doesn't care about. And God, for that matter, he isn't like the judge either. The judge was unloving. God loved us enough to send his son to die for us. The judge was unjust. God is just and promises that justice will be done. The judge was merciless, but God is rich in mercy and grace. God is infinitely loving, loving infinitely gracious, infinitely merciful and just. 
So quite simply, because of who God is and because of who we are, we have no reason to badger him. And says so we don't persist to get God's attention or to manipulate him. We persist because we know he cares and hears, and he's called us to pray persistently. You see, Jesus, I think he knew that sometimes we'd stop praying because we lose heart. And there'd be those times that God didn't seem to answer our prayers. The sick person we pleaded with God to heal, they died. The, the money we prayed for God to provide didn't come. The person we asked God to save, their heart only seems to be getting more and more hard in unbelief. And when that happens, he knew we, we might start to wonder if God even heard us, whether there was any point, in, and that some of us would get so discouraged that we just stop asking God for help altogether. We'd lose heart. And so here Jesus reminds us to pray persistently, knowing that just because the answer hasn't come doesn't mean that God hasn't heard us. In fact, Jesus goes on to say that even when we don't see the justice we seek, and it seems to lay that God isn't ignoring us, that he's not putting things off because he doesn't want to be bothered, know that he will bring justice in the appropriate time. Do you remember George Muller? I spoke about him. He prayed for one of his friends for more than 60 years. He wrote this, Never give up until the answer comes. My friend is not converted yet, but he will be. His friend would eventually be saved, but not until after George had passed away. Yet throughout his life, he prayed. Well, Jesus is calling us to pray that way. We must persevere in prayer, praying for the gospel to go out in our world, in our region, for sinners to be overcome with the love of God and be saved. We, we must preserve in prayer for a church, praying and asking God to renew, revive, and reform us as a church. We, we must pre preserve in prayer and then pray for God to work in our families. We must persist and pray that God would grow us and enable us to stand. And we ought to keep praying for that and, all, and much more than that, even when the answers don't come immediately. Why do we pray that way? Not because God is like a mathematician counting up our prayers, waiting until they reach a certain number before he'll answer, but because Jesus told us to. Besides, if you don't want what you're asking for enough to be persistent, you probably don't want it very much. One author put it this way, many of us in our praying are like nasty little boys who ring front doorbells and run away before anyone answers. So let me ask you, is that you? Dear friends, we're called to pray persistently. Well, there's one more lesson Jesus gave that we want to look at today. Not only we pray boldly, not only we be persistent, but Jesus goes on to tell us we're to pray humbly. We're to pray humbly. Just verse 9 of chapter 18. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted themselves that were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I get, give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus, he goes from one parable right into the next. This time he tells the story of two men that couldn't be more different than each other outside of their desire to go to the temple to pray. The one was a Pharisee. The Pharisees, they were a religious group at the time. They were known for their devotion to God. They loved the law. They were highly respected. They could be counted on to obey the law. They were the religious ones. If, if you thought were to think of anybody being saved, it was them. The other was a tax collector. 
They were, if there was a polar opposite, the tax collector probably qualified. They were the scum of society. They worked for the enemy. They worked for the Romans collecting taxes. Their pay came from the money that they extorted from the Jews, and so they extorted as much as they could. They were considered traitors. They were despised as outcasts. And the closest social equivalent today would be drug pushers and pimps, those who prey on the innocent. Well, in Jesus' story, the Pharisees goes right down to the front of the court of Israel in the temple, up where everyone could see him. He stood up tall, and then he prayed loud enough that everyone in the court could hear. He didn't kneel or bow down. He stood as if to say, I have a right to be here. Somehow, he thought he was worthy enough. And his prayer, it's a little more than self-absorbed. Essentially, he congratulates himself. He uses the word I five times, highlighting for all that had listened could hear him how better he was than others. He thanks God that he's a great person, not for what God had done. The problem with his prayer is obvious, isn't it? It's dripping with pride. He felt he earned a hearing that God owed it to him. He thought he had earned his salvation. He was just too conceited to admit that he was a sinner. The tax collector, he stood off far. He didn't march up the front. He couldn't bring himself to lift his head. He just stared at the ground. He definitely didn't look up to heaven. Even though people of the day, when they prayed, they prayed with their eyes raised. He didn't. He just didn't feel worthy enough to. Well, the Pharisees praised his actions, his own actions. The tax collector was filled with remorse and sore over his All he could do was ask God for mercy, ask God to forgive him, protect him from eternal judgment. Well, Jesus tells us it's the tax collector goes away justified. Well, the Pharisee did not. No doubt, Jesus, he had salvation in mind as he, as he told this parable. As a tax collector knew that it was not on the basis of what he had done that he could come to God, but solely on the basis of God's grace. He knew that he was a sinner. In fact, in the Greek, he refers, he refers to himself as the sinner, not a sinner, but the sinner, as the worst of all sinners, as if he knew there was nothing redeeming in him. All he could do is throw himself on God's mercy as his only hope. And by doing so, the tax collector, he becomes this perfect example of how we can be saved. You see, it doesn't matter what we've done, how good we've been, how, how great we might be compared to others, how, how, like the Pharisees, we might measure up against others. Because God, well, he, he, he doesn't measure us up against others. Instead, he compares us to his perfection. And when we're measured against God, we're quickly left in the dust with nothing to show for ourselves. All we can do is throw ourselves to God's mercy and ask for his forgiveness. Knowing that apart from Jesus, we don't deserve to be saved. We, we don't deserve to be made a part of God's family and definitely don't deserve to be heard by God when we pray. Fortunately for us, the Bible tells us that God is loving and gracious and merciful and saves us as we come to him in faith and hears us when we pray. In 2 Chronicles 14, God promised the Jews of that time that if they humble themselves and prayed and turned from their wicked ways, he would hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. A few chapters later, we come across Manasseh. Manasseh was one of the Jew, Jewish kings, and he led Israel astray to do more evil than many of the people the Israelites drew, drew, drove out before him. Well, Manasseh was eventually captured by the Assyrians, and, and when he was in that state, he turned to God, and, and then he prayed, and it reads this, when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his play, plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. In both cases, and in many more, God hears those that humbled themselves and threw themselves on his mercy. Well, like Manasseh, the, the tax collector was at the end of himself. 
And because he was at the end of himself, he knew he had nowhere else to look but to God's grace and pleaded for God's rescue. And when someone does that, even if they're as messed up and as wicked as Manasseh was, God hears, he hears and saves them. Well, he didn't see things that way. Instead, he thought he was worthy, that he deserved a hearing based on who, who he was, his good works, that God owed him. He wasn't looking for God's grace, and so he didn't get it, God's grace. Of course, the problem was, without God's grace, he left just as unjustified as when he came. So the, the lesson, it, it just isn't about salvation. After all, not only do we need to come humbly to God if we want to be saved, but God desires us to continue to approach him with the same humbleness once we're saved. You see, it's just that we sometimes forget that as believers, don't we? And sure, we started where the tax collector was, knowing we needed Jesus, how, how far from him we were, how much we needed his grace. But in time, we start to live as, as if we've earned this faith and, and that God, God owes us, that he, he, we deserve a hearing with him. It's all too easy for us to forget that the only reason that we can boldly enter God's presence is because of what Jesus has done for us. That without him, without Jesus, we can't. And that recognition, that awe of what Jesus has done for us should continually shape our attitude as we pray. Well, here in these three parables, Jesus, he teaches us about prayer. He tells us how we ought to pray. The only question is, will we pray as he's told us to? Will we pray boldly for what he's promised, confident that he will stay true to his word? Will we be persistent, waiting on God for his timing, but showing our faith and desire by persevering in prayer? And will we pray humbly? Today, I hope you'll join us as we pray together this afternoon. And as we join together for worship after that, and as we do that, I believe that God is calling us to do just that, just what he's called us to do in these parables, to pray boldly for those who don't know Jesus in our region, because they are many, they're going to hell without him. To pray boldly for those people in our region that don't know him. To pray humbly, grateful for all that he has done in saving us, all he's done in, in making us into church, and, and to pray persistently. So I, I'm asking you to come out and pray with us today. And greater than that, will you set out in your own prayer times to do what Jesus has called us to do here? To pray boldly, humbly, and persistently. Would you pray with me? Father, we take for granted that you hear us when we pray. We take for granted that you answer our prayer requests and that you long to bless your people. And Father, we get consumed with what we want and sometimes miss what that blessing is meant to be. But Father, forgive us when we, we don't even bother to come to you. Lord, I pray for us as a church that you would remind us of our need to pray to you, that you would make us into a church that prays boldly, especially for this region, that you'd make us into a church that prays persistently, and that you'd remind us continually to be humble as we come to you in prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.